Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Coronavirus infections are on the rise again, even in countries that are mostly vaccinated. New research suggests why that may be. Not only are jabs less effective against the Delta variant, their overall effectiveness may be fading with time anyway. And what kind of holidaymaker are you? The kind who checks, even responds to emails? Or the kind whose out-of-office message suggests not a chance? We look at how people deal with time away and how the pandemic has changed even that. First up, though. In Kabul yesterday, protesters against Taliban rule celebrated the anniversary of Afghanistan's independence. (laughs) Taliban militants fired on demonstrators in another city, Asadabad, as they had a day earlier in Jalalabad. Intelligence agencies suggest the Taliban were also targeting Afghans who'd worked for NATO or the country's deposed government. (laughs) Meanwhile, efforts by America and its allies continue on evacuating foreign staff and fleeing Afghans. We intend to maximize each plane's capacity. We're prioritizing people above all else. And we're focused on doing this as safely as possible with absolute urgency. Amid all these chaotic scenes, one global power has projected calm. China's ambassador shared a photo of the country's embassy in Afghanistan, with its flag flying high and no guards pictured at the doors. A foreign ministry spokesperson scolded America this week, urging it to stop interfering in other countries' affairs under the pretense of democracy and human rights. The suggestion is that China is more dispassionate in its interests, untroubled by ideology as it engages on other matters. China's made very clear that it sees the fall of the Afghan government as a gigantic failure for America and a reason to doubt everything about how America thinks the world should be run. David Rennie is The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. The most immediate message is that America looks bad, looks unreliable, and that's a great message for Chinese propaganda machine. But they want to advance a longer-term argument about how foreign relations based on interests, security, economic interests, That is a better way of running the world than trying to create a better Afghanistan. Is that to say that China is pitching itself as an ally to the Taliban? No, China doesn't do allies with anyone, let alone with radical Islamic groups. There's no trust or love between China and the Taliban, but China has spent several years talking to the Taliban increasingly openly, and they have shared interests. The Taliban is desperate for international recognition, would like to get some investment, China is overwhelmingly concerned to have a stable 
Afghanistan. It's a neighbor. It doesn't want to see chaos in Afghanistan. And in particular, China is obsessed that there is a link between its iron-fisted rule in its region of Xinjiang and the risks of militants, particularly from the Uyghur minority, coming through Afghanistan back into Xinjiang. And so that is overwhelmingly their interest with the Taliban. And the Taliban, although you know they say that they are believers in Muslim solidarity around the world, when it comes to the Uyghurs, they have clearly done some sort of deal with the Chinese and have said in public that they will never allow Afghan territory to be used for acts detrimental to China. And that is code for the fact that the Taliban are going to sell the Uyghurs down the river if that's the price of Chinese support. How does China square that message then with, with, with the attitude it's taken to its own Muslim community inside the country and some fundamentalism outside it? It's fascinating. When you saw the Chinese foreign minister recently photographed next to very senior Taliban leaders who came to visit him at the end of July, there was kind of real shock in sort of Chinese social media because China is all about combating Islamic radicalism, combating terrorism. And here are these people who lots of Chinese people remember from previous news reports looking a lot like Islamic terrorists. And you've even seen some interesting things, some state media kind of testing out lines sort of presenting the Taliban as a swell bunch of guys who are all about the poor, getting quite a lot of pushback on Chinese media. Really what China is pushing is the old-fashioned line that every country should have its own choice of political system, that you shouldn't judge or interfere in others. But as you say, that is very hard to square with the fact that China internally is all about the extreme dangers of Islamic radicalism. So that older message, that one of autonomy and self-determination then is really directed at America rather than at Afghanistan. So in the medium and long term, China doesn't really know if it can trust the Taliban. So in the short term, it knows it can pocket one thing, which is a golden opportunity to sell the message that America is old and tired, pulling back from the world, and that other countries who think of America as an ally or a bringer of security shouldn't be stupid enough to trust this isolationist America. And you saw state media instantly pushing the message that this should be listened to in places like Taiwan, the democratic island that China says belongs to China. Very explicit, gloating commentaries in state media about how Taiwanese politicians will be fleeing like the Afghan government when they get attacked because the Americans will not come to help. And it's interesting that when Taiwanese leaders were asked about this, for example, the Taiwanese prime minister, he didn't say, of course, we know the Americans would turn up if China ever attacked us. He said, what Afghanistan shows you is that every country needs to be able to look after its own defense and security. You have to believe in yourselves. But Joe Biden made an important point, which I think is heard with some attention in Beijing, which is that one way that they pitch the Afghanistan withdrawal is it's to free up American resources and bandwidth, if you like, to focus on Asia Pacific and above all, the competition with China. And our true strategic competitors, China and Russia, would love nothing more than the United States to continue to funnel billions of dollars in resources and attention into stabilizing Afghanistan indefinitely. But this current battleground of Afghanistan is, is a place where Chinese and American interests are, are somewhat aligned, right? Neither country wants instability, neither wants the, the growth of radicalism. That's right. And if you want a kind of yardstick to see just how bad US-China relations have become over the last 20 years, think of the fact that straight after 9-11, they had the same shared interest in Afghan stability and combating global terrorism. Back then, the Bush administration recognized a Uyghur militant group as a terrorist group, allowed Chinese spies to Guantanamo Bay to actually interrogate Uyghurs who'd been picked up in Afghanistan on the battlefield and detained in Gitmo. That's completely gone now. The Americans 
angered China recently by saying that they're no longer even sure that terrorist group even exists. And it was very striking that in a phone call this week between the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and his American counterparts, Anthony Blinken, he basically said that cooperation wouldn't come for free. He said, America is busy trying to contain and suppress China. It can't then turn around and hope for China's cooperation. And I think what that shows you is that compared to 20 years ago, China and America are more than just rivals. They disagree on some fundamental questions about how the world should be run. How do you mean? If you look at the Chinese sort of story about Afghanistan and what it should tell you, you know, China used to say, we have our system, you have your system, we're very focused on economic development, don't, you know, talk to us about matching every single universal right or Western value just yet. You know, there was a kind of sense, you know, we should respect our differences. Now they're saying that America leads countries to disaster precisely because America cares at all about values and rights and democracy, that it's far better to be like China and to focus exclusively on interests, economic development, and broad kind of political support because you're delivering stuff. And that kind of idea that an interests-only foreign policy with kind of cold-eyed realism is morally superior to America's hopes of kind of making a better world, that's a much more confident, much more assertive pitch. And for China, Afghanistan is just the latest fantastic opportunity to advance that argument. Thanks very much for your time, David. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. As the Delta variant of the coronavirus pushes up infection numbers, even in well-vaccinated countries, talk has turned to booster shots. America's Surgeon General announced this week that people vaccinated at least eight months ago can receive an extra jab. Israel is already giving them to the vulnerable. France is considering them. In Britain, the health secretary said a rollout would begin next month. We are going to have a booster scheme. It will start sometime in September. I couldn't tell you exactly when. It's a divisive question, given how many haven't yet received one dose, an idea not lost on the World Health Organization. We're planning to hand out uh, extra life jackets to people who already have life jackets while we're leaving other people to drown without a single life jacket. It isn't clear just how much booster doses will help, and it's not just the Delta variant that they'll be fighting. The other battle may simply be against time. A study released yesterday, which was done in Britain, measured how vaccine effectiveness changed over time, and particularly how it changed when the Delta variant, which is now dominant in many countries around the world, replaced Alpha, which was the previous variant. 
Slavia Chankova is our healthcare correspondent. And what they found was that the effectiveness of the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines was actually a bit lower against Delta than it used to be against Alpha. In addition, they found that efficacy wanes over time. So how exactly did they they figure this out? So the study used a very large survey, which has been running in Britain since April last year, and it involves about half a million people who are tested regularly for COVID-19. So they just measured how many people got infected at any given time among those who were vaccinated and those who are not. And that's how they tracked the effectiveness of the vaccines. So in a general sense, these vaccines seem less effective against the Delta variant. That's right. What they found was that previously with the Alpha variant, the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines were about 90-95% protective against infections with high viral load. So those are the really infections that you worry about because they're most likely to be transmissible. When Delta came along, the effectiveness decreased by about 10-15 percentage points. So not a huge lot. The vaccines are still working very well against infection, but it definitely decreased because of vaccine evasion of the Delta variant. And also they found that the efficacy in a general sense dropped with time. Yes. The study found that the effectiveness of the vaccines just wanes over time. That decline was very clear for the Pfizer vaccine, which at the beginning is about 90% effective. Soon after you get vaccinated, within three months, effectiveness declines by about 10 percentage points. For the AstraZeneca vaccine, the drop for that vaccine was less pronounced. So if you look at the trend, it's much flatter than the Pfizer vaccine, but it still does seem to decline a little bit over time. So this kind of result would explain the breakthrough infections that we're seeing among vaccinated populations. That's right. We knew from before that the vaccines were not 100% effective in preventing infections, but those increases in infections in countries which are highly vaccinated, like Israel, Iceland, here in the UK, we now know that probably a large portion of that is driven by the fact that there are breakthrough infections among vaccinated people. And those seem to be happening more frequently the longer people are out from the time they got vaccinated. In addition, what the study found was that with the Delta variant, the viral load with these breakthrough infections was very high. That wasn't the case with Alpha. If you were vaccinated and you got infected, you didn't have much virus in your nose and throat, so likely you weren't passing the infection along uh, very often. That's different with Delta. The viral load with breakthrough infections is pretty much as high as it is for people who are not vaccinated. And it is much higher than it used to be with Alpha. So it's a concern both for vaccinated people and, I guess, everyone around them. I mean, how does this play into the discussion that's now started in several places about booster shots, about sort of resetting the clock? The case for boosters is not yet very clear scientifically. We don't know whether they will change the trajectory of the epidemic. The vaccines we have now in the two-dose regimens are still very protective against severe outcomes, hospitalization and death. We know that with the Delta variant, with the passage of time, 
that hasn't changed. So it's just infections for which the vaccines seem to be a bit less powerful now. It remains to be seen whether boosters change that. Uh, Early evidence from Israel suggests that they do. Infection rates amongst the age groups who got boosters are lower than they are amongst the age groups who have not gotten boosters yet. So it's quite a complex, quite a muddy picture at this point. I mean, what's the takeaway to your mind from all of this? Well, the bottom line is that the relationship between vaccinations and immunity has become more complicated. We were hoping that vaccines will be highly protective against severe outcomes. Of course, they still are, but we were hoping that they'll prevent against transmission as well. And it now looks like uh, that's not the case or not to the extent that we're hoping for. And what that means is that even countries that have vaccinated at a very high rate may not be out of the woods yet if they get rid of all protective measures such as masks and various restrictions and let the virus circulate widely. But I'd like to remind everyone that we do have vaccines that prevent people from dying. So the most important thing is now for everyone to get the initial full course of vaccination, the one or two jabs, and that's the best we can do at this point. Slavea, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. At this time of year, with luck, you've got some well-earned days away from work lined up. But whether you're seeing the sights of San Francisco or sunning yourself in Saint-Tropez, your holidays might not be free from interruptions. Then what? Should you keep an eye on your inbox while you're away? Maybe just reply to this one message? Or is it healthier to be a holiday hardliner? In the olden days, office life used to be pretty binary. You were either at your desk if you were working, or you weren't at your desk if you were on holiday. Stanley Pignol is our European business and finance correspondent, but this week he's been weighing up his holiday habits. Now everyone has smartphones, and because most of us aren't in the office very much, if at all these days because of the pandemic, the boundaries of work and non-work have been shifting. Obviously, this is for people who have office jobs, who have a certain degree of autonomy in in how they organize themselves. And realistically, even when they're on holiday, they stay in touch with office life. The emails keep coming in. The odd phone call will come in from someone who doesn't know you're on vacation. And that clashes with people's idea of what a holiday should be. In Europe, there's even this idea of a right to disconnect, to not be available at all outside working hours, whether it's at the weekends, whether it's in the evenings, whether it's on holiday. Yet some people, as you say, furtively choose not to disconnect. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody is working on holiday in the same way that they are when they're supposed to be working. But if you can save a colleague a few hours of work just by spending a couple of minutes responding to an email, it would seem churlish not to. And for a lot of people, keeping an eye on things, looking at your emails, can make returning to work a little less daunting. We all have this dread of logging back on on our first day and finding 3,000 unread emails. But what about one of the principal psychological effects of holiday, which is getting away from work completely, uh, sort of clearing the mind and soul? There is clearly an argument for taking a proper break away from work to clear your mind. Holidays can help to avoid burnout, which is good for both employees and for employers. The other thing is many 
office jobs now require a measure of inspiration. And arguably, that's the point of a vacation, right? That office workers are more productive over the course of the year if they work for 47 weeks rather than 52 weeks. It's the same reason we have weekends. And so if that dynamic plays in strongly, then in a sense, there's an incentive for employers to to insist on a break. Yeah, I mean, there can be an argument for enforcing a complete break if you're an employer. If an employee is properly away, they will have to pass on all of their tasks to somebody else. That person, in turn, will develop skills. They will understand their normal job differently. That, I think, is very useful for an organization. It builds resilience. It can also be a way to prevent fraud. Some banks, for example, demand employees are away for two straight weeks precisely so those employees have to hand over their tasks to someone else. And the idea came about after one of the big swindles of the past decade or so, when Jérôme Kerviel, who was a French trader at Société Générale, hid enormous losses in an elaborate fraud. Part of the way he did that was always being at his desk. And the reason he never went on holiday is because he had to cover up his tracks. And so that's what regulators want to avoid now. So where is this all going now that so many of us are are working from home anyway? I mean, the trend had been for a little bit more furtive working uh, since we had all the tools to do it. Where, where does that sit now? One thing I've noticed, and this is among European contacts, is people who are working from home, but what look to be actually really nice holiday destinations. So I'll give you an example. One executive I spoke to said usually he took a couple of weeks off to go to a Greek island. This summer, he is going to be on that Greek island for a couple of months. He's going to be working. He admits kind of not entirely at full whack. The counterpart is that during the time when he's meant to be completely away, he's still going to check emails and end up doing one or two hours a day. And I wonder if actually with COVID-19, that's not going to become a bit more of a model. On paper, holidays are going to stay the same. In practice, we may see a further blurring of the time we're in work versus the time we're away from work. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you talking to us from a Greek island? I'm not on a Greek island, but I can see how this is going to be something. Many of us have felt guilty about shirking from work. Now we're kind of encouraged to feel the opposite way, which is, you know, we're shirking from our holidays. Thanks very much for joining us wherever you are, Stanley. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Kim Gittleson and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer, Salt Rivers. Our senior producers are Hannah Mourinho, Duncan Barber, and Sam Colbert. Our producer is Stevie Hertz, and assistant producers Jason Hoskin and Abisoye Oshindairo, with extra production help this week from Dan Ashby, Kevin Kaners, John Joe Devlin, Jolene Goffin, and Lucy Taylor. We'll all see you back here on Monday. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.